people of God. Let's pray. Lord our God and Father, you are so great. You are so good, and you even give us this great opportunity, Lord God, this blessing of getting into your word, that you will shine it into our souls, into the light of our hearts in a dark place. We pray, Lord God, that you would just continue, Lord God, to draw us deeper into your word and deeper into communion and relationship with you and with each other. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been in Leviticus, which is not exactly like a church party, is it? A little bit difficult in there. We're going to make it a little bit harder. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Here's where the payoff is in learning things like Leviticus. You know, I've told you the story many times about how even growing up in the church and trying to learn the faith, many times I would start the Bible and I'd start in Genesis, which is mostly narrative, and learn the stories. Then I'd go through Exodus, which is also that heavy impact narrative, right? Then you get to Leviticus and you skip to the Revelation. And the reason why is because Leviticus is hard. Leviticus is also specific. Some people have called it in the church priestcraft, the things that the priests do. And a lot of them are complicated and technical, and a lot of them are penny-pinching and splitting the atom, so to speak, in how they would worship the Lord their God. We're going to get into a little about why they did it this way, but we're also going to read some of it so that we get some of the technical framework and we also get some understanding. Leviticus 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now that's pretty simple. And now it's going to get complicated. If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, the wood that is on the fire and on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift is for a burnt offering, it's from a flock. And then he goes on. I want you to notice the technical nature of it, the way that every little thing was supposed to be done in a very specific manner. As we go through, it only gets more and more complicated. This part for this, this for this, this has to be done there. It has to be done by these people. They have to be wearing these clothes. He has to have this thing around his neck. He has to throw it over there. If he throws it over there, it's wrong, right? He has to throw it over here. He has to wash in water or he can't wash in water. He has to be wearing a robe or he can't wear the robe. 
And it just goes on and on in deep technical detail about how these sacrifices are supposed to be done because they're representing the holiness of God imposed upon his people. And so the average person worshiping this God probably did not know all of these rules. But the priesthood was technically holy. Now, there's a difference between being technically holy and being actually holy. As we go through these stories, we even find some things about the sons of Aaron and about, and about the Levites. Were they always holy? Actually, no. There was this interesting situation that happens where there was a special fire. Even the fire that was used to burn the sacrifice had to be holy fire set aside to God. One time, a couple of the sons, they just brought fire from a normal campfire. You know, fire's fire. It's all hot, right? What's the difference? But they brought what God called strange fire, and they used it in the sacrifice of the Lord God so that he caused the fire to erupt out and consume them entirely. Why? Because they used different fire? What's God's hang-up on all of these technicalities? When we look at these laws... We talked last week about three different kinds of laws. We'll talk about it again today. When we look at the ceremonial laws, almost all of them are about holiness and the preaching of the gospel in pictorial form. Now, we all know about the difference between the Old and New Testament, right? These days, people's Old and New Testaments are about this far apart. Really, it's one book written in two testaments or covenants. The unity of the two has to be kept together to rightly interpret it. If we don't keep the unity of the entire book, we will lose the meaning of the entire book because all the New Testament is is the fulfillment of the old. And all that the old is is building us to the place where we receive the new. So if you bring strange fire in and try to use it for the sacrifice, you're corrupting the communication of the gospel before the clarity that we have in Christ. Now you might think to yourself, we have it easy, right? We're after Jesus. Well, think of them as being before Jesus. Jesus had been predicted. Jesus had been foreknown. Jesus had been prophesied. But they hadn't seen him. They hadn't read one of the Gospels. They didn't know the actual nature of the Messiah and who he was going to be and what he was going to be. They knew he would be a king, but they knew that he would be killed, right? They knew that he would be powerful, but they didn't really understand the nature of him being God in human flesh. They knew that he would do great things, but they didn't necessarily understand that he would rise from the dead. So it really is true that we have it easy, right? All the things that they saw in type and shadow and form, we've seen the reality. People often ask, why don't we do any sacrifices anymore? Because once the true sacrifice that these sacrifices typified has come, for us to do them now would not be worshipped. It would almost be an insult to the fullness of Christ which has been manifest to us, right? We can't go back to the signs and types and shadows when we have the reality. We know the real thing. But also notice, one of the reasons they had to be kept so holy is now any intrusion of mere human wisdom or rationality that comes in and tries to compromise the process, it is a compromise of the only gospel that these people knew. Now, if there's one thing that God takes infinitely seriously, it's his son, who just like your children, he loved more than anything. 
And yet he gave him for you so that you could be saved. And if anybody comes in and starts to corrupt the message or the integrity of his relationship with his son, he takes it seriously. So even though the priest was only appearing as holy, there are certain things that God expected him to do and not do, right? And in a certain way and not in another way. Now this should be a common idea to you because all of you are justified before God. All of you are saved. All of you are cleansed. All of you are holy. And you're in a holy relationship with God. But in here, are you actually holy all the time? I'd argue no. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Maybe you are. You can take that up upstairs, right? But you already are familiar with the idea that you've been made holy by a holiness outside yourself, but inside you're still you. It's very similar to this in which externally God made everything holy so that they could understand him in the best way that they possibly could, mired in their sinfulness. They washed with water, right? Before they could approach the tent of meeting, they had to wash with water. They had to be baptized every time they came were baptized once, but they had to be washed so that they would be ceremonially clean enough to approach the unapproachable God. In the same way, you've been baptized and washed with water, representing the death of your flesh and the newness of life and the cleansing that Christ has given you. So these things all still exist, but not in the way that they did. These things that we read in the Old Covenant, they still teach us about Christ in nuance and detail, things that we possibly don't even understand in the New Testament. So to forget the Old Testament and move on to the New is a massive mistake in understanding Christ. If they could understand Christ from this, we can understand Christ from this, right? In the technical details, every one of them teaches something about God in a different and deeper way. Notice... When an offering was given, certain parts of it were put on the wood. It had to be wood. Couldn't be a gas fire, right? Had to be on wood, and it had to be on the altar. Now, this thing that you guys see here, we usually call a lectern. We call it a pulpit. We call it a lot of things, right? Uh, this thing down here kind of still represents the old altar, the table where they would do the sacrifices. And when they would come inside, there would be the horns of the altar, There'd be these horns sticking off of this in four different directions, and that's where they'd put the blood. Uh, so a lot of people get to a place in their studies where they're like, aren't these kind of holdovers from Roman Catholicism? Because we don't sacrifice Jesus anymore, right? Uh, you know, it's a pulpit. Don't take it so serious, right? We're not sacrificing anything up here. We do re-image the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, when we perform the Lord's Supper. We do that, right? Notice it's not entirely different from what they're doing here. Before they knew the name of Jesus or the name of his parents, and before he came to them and was manifest in human flesh, every time they did that sacrifice, they were telling about Christ to come. There was a person that would come. They'd be burdened down with sin. They knew that they had sinned before the Lord. They knew that they possibly had done a sin that was worthy of death because most of them are, right? And they would come to the priest and they would bring an animal from their flock. Now, just like you all, have any of you gotten personally attached to your animal? 
I'm from California. I've known a lot of ladies with, a, you know, a Pomeranian in their purse. It happens all the time, and they love that dog, right? It, you know, more than their kids, but not more than their grandkids. And have you ever had like a good dog? A few times in my life, I've had a good dog, and that's just awesome. That dog's your friend. That dog will die for you or kill for you, right? It's a good thing. When it's your animal, it's costing you something personal. And when it's a sacrifice, it has to be the very best of your flock. And it has to be one without blemish. So the idea that people just had endless flocks, and what did they care if they gave one more animal? Hey, for most of us, it wouldn't be that way, right? If we had five or ten, we'd consider ourselves rich. We're not all like Job or Solomon. And you would bring that to the priest. And the priest would accept it on your behalf. And he would lay it on the altar. And in front of you, he would put it to death. And you would watch the blood flow down into a bowl. And he would go up to the altar. And he would sprinkle the blood on the altar where the intercession between God and man happened. And then he would take some behind a curtain where you couldn't see what was going on. But back there would be the Ark of the Covenant. And he'd spill some there too. And then the animal would be cut into very specific pieces, with very specific pieces being consumed entirely by fire. Now, what does that represent to you? It should be obvious. The destruction of sin, right? The fire had to completely consume it. And it says that the smoke rose up. The smoke rose up, and that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Do you think it went in the Lord's nose? How could that be a pleasing aroma to the Lord? It's typical and representative of his son. And there's places in scripture where it says the smoke that rose from the altar represents the prayers of the saints going up to God the Father. Then certain cuts were given back to you. It's interesting, right? Certain cuts were always given back to you except for one offering, the sin offering, because that had to be consumed entirely by fire. And the rest you took home and with your family on that very day, after it had been cooked on the altar, you ate it with your family to sustain your life and to represent God's blessing being given back to you, even in the offering. Even today, we eat in church. We eat and we drink. We eat and we drink. So there's an amazing thing being testified to when you get into these nuance by nuance, line by line. Every little piece of it has matter, importance, depth, and meaning. So it's very easy to say that with our younger children, we're going to kind of brush this aside and get back to this at a later time. But there's no reason for us to avoid it. There's a blessing in there. And we should try to find it. Verse 10, if this gift is for a burnt offering from the flock, from sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it up into pieces with its head and with its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire of the altar, and the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then he has a condensation for the poor. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring turtle doves or pigeons. We later find out some people can't afford it. Some people can't even own a sheep or a goat, right? 
And so it would be turtle doves. And if it can't be turtle doves, if they're so poor they can't afford that, then just flour. A handful of flour can be their sacrifice before the Lord. The idea that everybody owned bulls and things, they did not. A bull was basically a bulldozer in those days. Only a rich person had bulls around. They're complicated and they're difficult to take care of and they're expensive. And so he goes on more and more to different kinds of offerings for different kinds of things. Look at chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Everything very technical, very pronounced to be done in a specific way because it's holy. Okay, let's take a look now at the book of Hebrews. Verse 8. Uh, chapter 8, excuse me. Hebrews chapter 8. Here he's already talking, and if you want the background, of course, you have to read the first seven chapters, but he's already talking about the old covenant and the difference between the new covenant in Christ and the old covenant of the, of the Old Testament. Now, the point of what we're saying, he says, is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, talking about the same tent of meeting, that is that the Lord set up, not man. So now we start to understand why they had these things on earth because they, had, they were just mirrors, they were just representations or symbols of another set of the same things that are in heaven. When they had the tent of meeting and when they had the altar and when they had the sacrifices, these were only representations of what was going on in heaven at the same time where the Lord had set up his own altar. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. It's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if it were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Now this is important, because he's really saying all of those things from the Old Testament, they're really insufficient. There was a fault in them. There was a flaw in them. Not a mistake, but if you had obeyed all of the laws of the old covenant, it still could not have really reconciled you to God because it was absent the one thing that was necessary. And that was Christ and him crucified. We've got these verses all of a sudden that turn up, you know, you might get the idea that everybody's really being reconciled to God by the blood of bulls and goats and animals and the priesthood. And then all of a sudden you'll have a verse show up that's very, uh, you know, uncomfortable, like, God is never pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. You're like, what? I just went through a thousand pages of him liking blood of bulls and goats. And he'll just tell you, you know, it's not about the blood of bulls and goats. How could you think that the blood of bulls and goats could really reconcile you to me? But it's typical of his son. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. 
and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now this is talking about you. You are this special and blessed people who are indwelt by the very spirit of the living God who has written his law on your heart and mind. Sometimes we call these things conscience, but you know the difference between good and evil and he guides you in it so that you step in the right way and that you avoid evil and hate evil even in yourselves and in your hearts and even in the world. And yet the Lord your God has made you to know him in a deeper and fully way than perhaps anyone in the old covenant did. You might think of it like this. Though they were Christians before time and they did believe in the Christ that was coming that was the source of their salvation, you know him in a way in which he has been fully expressed to you in Christ. So that your relationship, even in this world, is closer than theirs was before time. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now I want to take a quick look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, it's a very famous verse. There's no reason not to go over it. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. The entire thing is breathed out by God. It's written by 40 different authors, every one of them a pen in the hand of God as he wrote down his word. We need to remember that all of this is breathed out by God, not just parts. We can't take it in parts and pieces. The, the fundamental error of the church today in regard to Scripture is to take some of it, but not all of it. And you will have people that will go to war with you from within the Bible against other parts of the Bible, right? And yet our duty is to receive all of it, even the parts that make us uncomfortable and even the parts that seem a little weird. I guarantee you most of the parts that seem a little weird really mean you're a little weird. I remember reading stuff in there and I was like, I have no idea what this means. And just calling out to God and saying, God, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about here. And then as years progressed and study progressed, I grew into it and I got to the place where I could receive it. And now I have an understanding of it. Did you know in the Eastern religions, there's a thing called a guru? And have you ever heard of a guru? Now everybody's a guru. But at that time... It was basically in religion where you reached the end and you became a master. You received enlightenment and you need to know nothing else because you've been perfected in knowledge, right? Notice in Christianity, we don't have that. The pastor is not that. The elders aren't that. You never reach the place where you have no more learning to do. You might reach the place where you're sufficient to teach somebody else a little something, but we have no gurus. There's no end. We're always insufficient in knowledge. We're always leaning into this book, and there's sometimes in life when you can understand something in a deeper way than you could understand it before, right? 
So one of the things that we learn from this scripture is to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And if you don't understand something now, wait and pray, because you will very probably understand it later. But we've got to have a basic presumption and trust relationship with God that he's right and we're wrong. Now, this is very similar to with your parents. You know, when you were kids and they told you not to do something, they're telling you, don't jump off the barn, right? And you keep jumping off the barn. Hey, there's almost a foot of hay down there to catch you, right? And then that one time you jump off the barn and what happens? You break your leg, right? Then, not only do you have the pain of a breaking leg, you're also going to get a whooping for jumping off the barn. But they told you. Why did they know you shouldn't jump off the barn? Because kids have been jumping off barns since they started making barns, right? This is not new math. In the wisdom of God, if he wants to teach you through time, trust him through the process because all of it is revealed by God and given for your edification. There isn't a single bit of it that will fail you. And if you have to understand it bit by bit, piece by piece through time, then so be it. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Now through all of that, now I'm going to lay the heavy on you. Are you ready for this? All of that was just warm up to get us ready to read these verses. Chapter 2, we'll start from the beginning. So, he's putting a condition upon you, because of everything you know, put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And that's not the verse I'm going for, but it ain't bad, right? Hey, how long are you an infant in the Christian faith? How old will you be before you're done with that? Moses was still young when he was 140, right? There are people in the Bible that lived hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm pretty sure they were all infants to God, right? So we never get to the place where we're done learning. And he's talking about salvation as being an infant seeking milk and continuing to grow and change. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. I know you come from a background of a lot of different theologies. I got a lot of different theological backgrounds myself. But this is a sheer fact of the blinding logic of Scripture. If you believe in Christ today, it's because you were chosen by God, not because you chose him. I'll even go a little farther and say, if you chose him, it's because he chose you first. And that's why it says you were chosen by him here, because you were chosen by him. Now, some people will say, well, he only chose you because he thought you were going to choose him. But that's just silly. Nobody chooses you because you thought you would, they thought you would choose them. That makes the choosing of you ridiculous. Each one of you has been chosen and selected by God and drawn to him for your salvation, not because of your will, but against your will. You would have fought him kicking and screaming all the way to the end, but you're chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That priesthood of the old, one of the reasons you want to pay attention to it is because you're a part of it. 
All of us have been integrated. In. Now, there's this, this, this distinction between the common people and the priesthood in Scripture, right? And even in the priesthood, there's the Levites, and there's the Aaronic priesthood, and there's the high priest, and there's the lesser priest, right? And still today, as we just read in Hebrews, we have a new high priest, and who is our high priest? So who is the priesthood? Because it does not make a distinction in Scripture anymore between those who are called into this spiritual priesthood and the laity that really don't understand and don't have much to do with it. That's not a distinction the Scripture makes here. I'll read the verse to you again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's move down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not even a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So now it's clear who is he talking about. He's talking about you. If you were able to keep the priesthood at an arm's difference and say, wow, that was interesting stuff they did back then. This is the interesting stuff that you do now. Now, in a purely spiritual way and not through signs, types, and shadows, you are the actual reality that was intended so that everything in the Old Testament is yours because it's all pointing to you as you've come in Christ. Before, there was a high priest that lasted for a little while, but he had to sacrifice for his own sins, right? And eventually he died and they had to get a new high priest. But now we have a new high priest who has already risen from the dead. And so he lives forever to intercede on our behalf. If you want to know what you'll be doing in heaven, the idea that you'll probably be a fat little baby with a bow and arrow is not the case. I don't know everything we'll have to do up there, but there will be things to do. But you will be serving the Lord with gladness. If you want to know where the priesthood comes back, you're already it. You are the intercessors between man and God. And that can be done in as simple a way as sharing your faith with your neighbor or in as wonderful a way as taking care of the poor and the needy and the sick. But most of it has to do with that you are those that get the great an incontrovertible good of worshiping the Lord with gladness. Our interaction with him is in worship and praise. We raise our voices to him and we sing songs of joy and he participates in those with us through his spirit. Just like in those days they had the tent of meeting, which was really just a sign or a symbol of the true tent of meeting in heaven. When we get together on Sunday and we come into this room and we are worshiping the Lord our God, this is just a tiny shadow or a remembrance, a resemblance, a mirror image of things that are going on in heaven every day. In every song that you sing, when you raise your voice to the Lord, the angels in heaven by their tens of millions are praising the Lord our God. These are the things that we participate in still in this earthly priesthood, which has already transcended a mere earthly state and become spiritual. So that when your spirit calls out to the Lord your God. His spirit is working within you to bring you to that place where you're participating in a heavenly choir. The reason the Apostle Paul stops to give a moral proclamation is because if this is true, shouldn't we live like it's true? I'm always careful to tell you there's not a single thing that you can do 
to make God more pleased with you than he already is in Christ. Your justification is completely in Christ and not in yourselves. You're not under the law as a means of getting to God. But that doesn't mean that he does not have a life for you which is most fulfilling and the greatest blessing, which is through conformity to his moral law and the likeness of Christ, which is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself, he assumes you already love yourself. Now love your neighbor that way because of what he's already made you. Let's pray. Lord, our God, you've been so great to your children. The blessings that you give us, Lord God, they are mountains in a world full of molehills. And so, Lord God, let us just praise you with happy hearts for all of the great things that you give us. Let us take seriously the duties and responsibilities and the privileges and honors that you poured out on us. We don't deserve any of them, Lord God. But let us worship you with gladness, which is the primary expression of joy of the Christian life. And also let us be good, Lord God. Let us be good to our neighbor and spread your love here and around the world. We praise you for all of these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The last hymn will be number 284.
People of God look up and receive the blessing of God. Now, this is not a prayer. This is a proclamation of what you've already received. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.
sound to it. I like it a lot. So with Wednesday happening, what's the plan this Wednesday? Are we, uh, oh yeah, 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 our client's doing the client coming every week. I said, yeah, they're going to try doing the... Yeah, we're just trying to wrap up. 